I'm Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books and Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us today. When we hear the word eugenics, we often think of coercive programs, forced sterilization, for example. When we hear the words reproductive health, we often think about individual freedoms like access to contraceptives. Historian Annette Tim shows us how these notions are intertwined, how healthy fertility can be at once a matter of sexual duty, as she calls it, a responsibility to the state, and something that individual citizens wish for their own personal happiness. Tim brings us this history in the case of the city of Berlin, which experienced a liberal administration in the aftermath of World War I, Nazi rule from 1933 to 45, foreign occupation, and finally division into communist and democratic sectors before reunification in 1990. In her book, The Politics of Fertility in 20th Century Berlin, which came out with Cambridge University Press in 2010, Tim shows us how the ideology of sexual duty evolved and eventually faded, and how it played itself out at the local level, which, after all, is where we get our health care. Annetta Tim is Associate Professor of History at the University of Calgary, and she joins us for today's podcast. Well, I'm really happy to have you on the show today. I'm thrilled to be talking about your book, The Politics of Fertility in 20th Century Berlin. Uh, but maybe before we get started with the book, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into this line of work? What made you interested in working in, in, in working on, on fertility in 20th Century Berlin? Well, the route is a little bit circuitous, I would say. I, I began in my interest in um, history in general because, um, well, literally – I sat around talking about history on Saturday mornings with my dad, who both my parents are from northern Germany. They came to Canada in 1954. So I'm an immigrant kid. And um, though I was born in Canada and I heard a lot of stories about Germany during the war when my parents were were children. My parents were 14 when the war ended. They were both uh, in the Hitler Youth before um, the fall of the Third Reich. And so. You know, needless to say, as immigrants to Canada in their 20s, they had to tell a lot of stories about where they'd come from, and they told them to us. So I was always kind of fascinated by Germans um, of that generation and how they'd reacted to the war. And um, there was quite a large immigration to Canada of Germans who left Germany. So what was how what what led them to relinquish their their allegiance to a country and 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 you know get on a ship and uh, start a whole new life in a new country. So those those things are why I became interested in German history. I think it was a, a fascination built into my family. Um, but then when I started grad school, I didn't have specific ideas about what what I was going to look at in particular. Um, and I went to the University of Chicago, so I was a Canadian studying German history in Chicago just around the time of. Um, Bill Clinton's healthcare reform initiatives, and coming from a place where healthcare um, is virtually considered a right, um, going to a place where it isn't, I moved my interest towards issues of health. Um, and then, you know, there's sort of there was a movement. There's a movement from the dissertation to the book. The dissertation was more about healthcare and healthcare provision, uh, and the book became more about history of sexuality. So that's another part of the story. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about that because, you know, this is, you know, when, when I read the book, there is, we, we get a sense of sort of deep embeddedness in, in the world of health, but indeed it, it, it turns out health intersects with sexuality all over the place. Um, so mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about that. 
Well, I think, you know, I was trying to, I didn't want to do a history of the bureaucratic institute, institutionalization of healthcare. I, I, you know, I think that wasn't really where I was going, but I, would, I, wa- I wanted to, what were the motivations for these amazing innovations and, and provision of local, local healthcare? Um, I, I became interested in, in um, there's another link here that I, I was interested in social Darwinism and those kinds of issues of how how those ideas fed into the provision that the construction of healthcare regimes because that was also true in Canada that some of the some of the initial um, inspirations for instituting a, a national healthcare system came from social Darwinian ideas from people like Tommy Douglas who wrote a wrote an MA thesis on eugenics so these things in some sense were linked at some of the origins of these things and I, I was sort of a little torn because I believe in universal health care, but saw these links and wanted to work them through. So, in Germany, if you look at these things, the the issues are 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 impossible to unintertwine to delink from issues of social Darwinism and really the idea of improving the health of the race. Now, if you look at that and how it's actually implemented, and this is what I was interested in, I was looking at, I wanted to find a sort of almost Alltagsgeschichte, history of the everyday way of looking at this. How does it, how do people actually react? How do people feel about the kinds of healthcare options that are available to them? So the, so the links all are complicated, but they, but they're, they're really important, I think, in understanding what's going on at that time. For most people, um, access to healthcare uh, one of the first ways that that became important was access to birth control and preventions of, di- of venereal disease and those kinds of things. So uh, that combined with my understanding that, that that fears about the birth rate in the late 19th and early 20th century were critically responsible for an interest in establishing health care that reached everybody, not just uh, certain classes of people, um, made me interested in Bevölkerungspolitik and population policy. And I really, when I started my dissertation research, that's what I wanted to do. And then I needed to find specific sites of that. Yeah, and certainly one of the things that I think is so interesting about the book is, you know, we do, because it's a local study, we do get much more of a sense of the everyday. Of course, we often think about things like eugenics and population policy as being great sort of grand master plans. But of course, these things have to be implemented at the local level and, and, you know, individuals, um, their their point of contact, whether it's a state-run system or whether it's individual f- physicians or an individual healthcare system, it is very much at the local level. Um, so you opted for 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 the study of Berlin and really what's mm-hmm. happening, kind of kind of on the street, um, but obviously in this context of national concern um, about about the like you say the falling health rate, um, the, mm-hmm. excuse me, the, the falling birth rate. Um, <laughs> So I guess we've we've kind of gone ahead and made the leap into talking about your book. Um, yeah. So yeah, tell us what's happening. What's going on? Your 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 book really picks up the story early in the twentieth century um, with the First World War. Tell us what's happening in Germany. Help us help us to to get contextualized here. Uh, well, I think um, there had been concerns about the falling birth rate before the war. This was not new. Um, the Germans actually followed the French in, in, in those kinds of concerns, and they intensified in the late 19th century. But the war itself um, just sort of massively increased, not just 
that concern because of the the loss of life and the and and the defeat in World War One, um, but also um, it had it had also massively increased the state's involvement in social life generally. So the the, the increase in social welfare programs, the the um, the um, uh, the likelihood that the government would would help widows and children and all of these things and sort of really intervene in the family in a much more um, in a much more direct way uh, with 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 nationalistic sort of motivations but I think also uh, with some demands from below that that people actually really believed that they now deserve some of these services because of their contribution to the war effort so right after the war there were several kind of healthcare crises. Um, that, that led, that fed right out of the war, venereal disease being, of course, one of them. The, 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 there had been a massive increase in venereal disease, um, and really it, it changed the disease from one that, that was well-known in cities to one that spread to all parts of the country. So this part of the book um, is slightly misleading in a way because I focused on Berlin, where it had always been a problem, but, but the concern was much bigger than that because these demobilizing soldiers who'd been exposed to venereal disease um, um, many of them through military brothels and that kind of thing, uh, there was really a sense of an increase, of a, a massive increase, um, not just in numbers, but also in, in to ask into how it had spread to other parts of the population where it wasn't common before. And so there was a great concern about that, and, and really venereal disease at the time was a concern because of its actual consequences, but also because it caused infertility. So this fed into this, these fears of the, of the falling birth rate. So there's that. Um, at the same time, there were um, a lot of social concerns about about uh, families and and um, endemic diseases in families and and families that were very poor having children and when they when they possibly were just causing um, more grief for themselves through various kinds of genetic and um, and endemic illnesses. I mean, really, the, 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 the a really key term here at the time was Volkskrankheit, the people's illness. In, in, illnesses that were chronic and endemic in the population um, that needed to somehow be solved through social means. So there's a fear of contagious diseases like venereal disease, but there's also a, a huge concern that, that, the weak, that, that there were various kinds of endemic diseases in, in, um, in the population, and particularly in urban populations, that, that needed to be rooted out through very conscious preventive measures and social concerns. What were some um, of those diseases? Just give us a couple examples. Alcoholism, tuberculosis. Alcoholism, tuberculosis, uh-huh. Yeah. So these were, I mean, really, in some sense, if you really wanted to write a book just about Bevölkerungspolitik, you would put these endemic diseases in, in, a, in, a, in a long list. Venereal disease, mm -hmm. tuberculosis, mm -hmm. alcoholism, um, and then other, you know, sort of uh, other diseases that were, that were difficult to cure. Um, and uh, that it was really felt that the, that, that the whole health of the nation was being weakened in, a, in, a, in an endemic and, and, um, and really socially constructed way. So you have the, the rise of, of whole medical disciplines called you know, things like social pathology and social hygiene that were really focused on not simply curing individual diseases, but, but working on it from, a, from, a, from the perspective of a, a large um, social... Um, uh, you know, um, um, understanding how one needed to understand the root causes and the social reasons for these things and, and educate people about not exposing themselves and those kinds of things. So 
So in that sense, there were all kinds of new um, access to health for for a lot of uh, a lot of people. And you have to keep in mind that um, in the in the German system, there was insurance for most workers, so they could have they had access to this kind of health care. And people like Alfred Grotian and others were really theorizing that it wasn't just about curing disease; it was about training people in healthy behavior and and making sure they made the right choices. Mm-hmm. For maintaining not just their own individual health, but you know, the focus was really across the um, political perspective on the health of the nation, on the health of the people. Right, and this is of course a big running theme through your book: this notion of the health of the nation, the health of the people, and and how that intersects with the individual, right? Mm-hmm. And you actually, you know, sort of, you 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 use the phrase of um, sexual duty, or you know. Or, or, or pose the question um, of, of to what extent it's individual citizens' duty to think about the health of the nation when they're making mm-hmm. their own private choices about health, about reproduction, about sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, how, how is this articulated? This, um, you know, here you have, after the First World War, you know, a... a a very activist state with with extensive social programs, um, in a sense, trying to communicate a connection between um, what they might call individual responsibility and the health of the nation. How, how are they trying to do that? Well, I think this is the this is the language used in almost all of the sort of literature. There's sort of there's many. Um, handouts that they give people on venereal disease, for instance, that if you go and get treated for venereal disease, you'll get a, you'll get a, a Merkblatt, it was called, a, a small brochure, talk telling you about, you know, what you should do to maintain your own health. But really, you know, the, the, the opening lines of this were usually, you know, things like, we need to uh, strengthen our, our, our general national health. And, and this is a, a disease that will threaten, um, that will threaten the future generations and, and, and your, your, your family health. So it's not just about your individual sexual choice, but about what that means for, you know, your, your, your progeny, your, your future, your, your future children, and that, that that's a nationalistic sort of uh, concern. I mean, I think that it's, it's, it's tricky here because, of course, people had an individual desire also to protect their health, and, and, and that's played on. But especially in the rhetoric of these agencies, you know, big government committees on Bevölkerungspolitik, on where they really call themselves po- Politica, they call themselves population politicians um, or, or political advocates. Um, they made sure to always make this link to that they were viewing this not in terms of making sure that people weren't suffering from the illness, but that that, that, that the key threat was to, to future generations. Um, and this is part of, I would say, a kind of quid pro quo that, you know, we are, these services are being offered to you, but you need to act with not just your own personal health in mind, but with, uh, with these larger goals of the, of, of citizenship. And so this is how I eventually came to, to see these things. And I, I began, you know, I had, when I first wrote the book, I, I used the term sexual citizenship instead of just sexual duty, um, because I really wanted to emphasize that there were, there were two sides to this coin. There was the, there was the 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 argument being made. You have a duty to protect your health because it would it will threaten the nation as a whole. Um, but there were 
rights associated with that. There were there was access to care. There was uh, ability to um, get this information to protect oneself from venereal disease or to or to have access to birth control. Those kinds of things were things that I think people really did seek. I think that sometimes the my my sort of focus in this book, and I think this this comes from this perspective of being actually quite supportive of universal health care and those kinds of things, was I didn't want to just argue that this was simply a top-down controlling mechanism, that that it was something that um, would only, you know, pr- would only sort of uh, be a negative force in people's lives. You can't have sex with people. You, you, you can't have babies in this circumstance, or you must have them in this circumstance. I think for, if you look at this local, local level, I think uh, Many, many working class uh, Berliners who went to these clinics uh, were very happy to get this information about how to prevent venereal disease or how to protect themselves from it or how uh, to not have child number six when they were already um, having a hard time feeding the five children that they had. So it really, I really wanted to emphasize these, these two aspects from both perspectives. On one sense, on one sense this was a... a an, uh, a regime that wanted to teach and train the working class into healthy behavior for nationalistic purposes. And there are many, many ways in which this uh, led to uh, social controls. So, you know, social workers would, would, would talk to working class women about how they, how it was really a bad idea for them to have child number six or, or, or that they, or that, or, or that they should not, or to, to men about not not being promiscuous and those kinds of things. So there's certainly aspects of this where this nationalistic rhetoric was an attempt to impose a certain kind of behavior on people. But but the other side of this was that people really did want to uh, control their sexual lives as well, and that and they had access to healthcare services, which which were quite new and innovative, and and in many cases provided a place of of advice and solace and care. So I, I wanted to emphasize the, the, you know, really the double-edged nature of this. And I think that citizenship in many ways is that. It is both, it is both rights and, it's, and, and duties. I chose not to use the word citizenship uh, just because it's a word that is being often used in very different ways in other kinds of literature that generally advocates um, um, a an integration of sexual of of sexual themes from the perspective of homosexuality and those kinds of things, and I thought it would that the word citizenship instead of sexual duty was would might detract from what I was arguing, and I didn't want to argue that it was told that everything about this was good that you know mm-hmm. that there was no sort of nationalistic or even racist connotations to what was going on here which is clearly the case. Yeah. You know, uh, when we when we think about things like population control and health of the nation um you know we especially knowing that that we're we're in Germany and we are, you know of course many of us would associate this with the Nazi regime but of course your story starts well before that and in a political environment um where we're not everybody's a nationalist, right? Berlin is a city with actually a very liberal mm-hmm. um, administration. Can you talk to us a little bit about about the the politics of, of all of this? Um, what what's our, our sort of cast of characters, and and why is this um, why, why is this so appealing across the spectrum? Well, I think that's I mean that's the really tricky thing to to keep in mind, and and it's another reason 
um, that I framed the argument the way that I did, because I think it's really critical to make sure you understand the the range of people involved in these programs in the Weimar Republic. I mean, the those who worked and organized VD clinics um, and many of the marriage counseling clinics were often on on the left of the political spectrum. They were they were SPD advocates. They were people who were very concerned about the health of the working class. Um, Alfred Grotian, who who theorized many of these um, discussions about how health should be um, healthcare measures should be focused at. At, at marriage and, and reproduction and, and all of these things, uh, was a member of the SPD. There were um, many people active in in marriage counseling and and really and but still eugenic marriage counseling, um, who were on on the most progressive side of of anything going on in in, in the Weimar Republic. So Magnus Hirschfeld had um, private marriage counseling clinics in his Institute for Sexual Science, who, which was advocating. Um, um, uh, uh, full rights for homosexuals and the, and the and the abolition of Section 175, which criminalized um, sexual activity between men, uh, and he had also transvestites and all of these people coming to his clinics in the same in the same institute. He had a marriage counseling clinic um, training individuals in eugenic thought about. Um, marriage counseling and and, and, and 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 reproductive decisions. So you have this whole spectrum of people and really there's as as Atina Grossman has argued a kind of eugenics consensus at the time uh, where eugenic thinking was considered the most most progressive kind of social health care. Now I, I think that at the core, and this is what I what I try to point out, that that there's still a consensus that 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 reproduction and reproductive decisions and even sexual decisions are somehow linked to national duties um, and and even across the spectrum this is this is considered um, an important uh, way for people to conceive of what they're doing that that these decisions weren't simply individual decisions and this is um, not a right-wing idea that it, it was it was absolutely part of of what was going on in the SPD. Of course, they have different attitudes to certain kinds of enforced um, policies. So uh, when the decision comes up or when arguments come up about, about forced sterilization, uh, advocates who are more on the left uh, believe that, that those decisions should still be voluntary, while on the right of the spectrum, there's more willingness to impose those kinds of decisions on an individual. But I think uh, that it's really critical to understand that the ideas were shared across the spectrum. And even even Jewish groups uh, really had very similar kinds of arguments about about protecting the health of 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 their own of their own um, ethnic group um, and uh, making sure that um, well, that people thought in these terms, that it wasn't an individualistic decision about how, whether you had what, what you did in your sexual and reproductive life. Yeah. Well, so you I know, and I, 
I think that, you know, I, one, one thing that I think, you know, 20th century Germany and certainly 20th century Berlin is such a, a wonderful laboratory for this discussion because, you know, we see a kind of a fledgling democracy in between the wars and then we see the Nazi regime. And then, of course, we'll want to talk about, you know, you, you talk about what happens after the wars with Berlin divided. Before we mm-hmm. get to these questions of political change, though, um, and of course, also sort of demographic crisis with yet another war, um, I, I I think many of our listeners are probably thinking right about now marriage counseling centers. Um, We know what venereal disease is, um, but tell us a little bit about these marriage counseling clinics. That's something that's um, that's a little bit unusual here. Yeah, I think that's really critical to um, distinguish because we would think of marriage counseling as a psychological relationship counseling. And that's not at all. Well, it's not it wasn't absent, but it wasn't the, the focus. The focus and the way it was advertised in you know newspapers and, and the way they tried to atta- attract people to come to these clinics was was about um, was about re- reproductive decisions. So you were you were you were encouraged to go to marriage counseling clinics before you got married um, to discuss uh, compatibility and to make sure that you might not have um, some sort of chronic illness alcoholism, tuberculosis, venereal disease that you could pass on to your to your future. Uh, partner um, and family and children. So, so really, almost the, the sole focus of these clinics were were those kinds of decisions, eugenic, genetic uh, counseling. Relationships uh, sometimes came into it. I think that those discussions were were probably had sometimes. Um, if you, I did interview some some welfare workers who'd worked a little bit later. Obviously, the Weimar um, welfare workers wouldn't would no longer be alive, and I think. Even in the most, um, even in the when when the clinics were set up for purely medical kinds of discussions, often uh, relationship discussions would come up. But really, the focus here was was trying to make people to give them to give them the the options, to give them information about birth control, to to give them the decisions, uh, but also to to make sure that they were thinking correctly, so to say, uh, about uh, what made sense in terms of having children, when to have children, how to space your children, make sure that that women would recover from a pregnancy before having another one and giving them access to birth control to be able to do that. Um, And also uh, marriage counseling and venereal disease were kind of intertwined. So so trying to find out if there was a disease that could be passed on uh, to children, so the, the whole focus was on that. It, it shifts, as as we'll probably talk about um, after the war, to to relationship counseling. But really, right up until the fifties, uh, the, the at least the the overarching ethos, the reason why these clinics were funded by the city and by the state, uh, were uh, those kinds of eugenic concerns. And you, you, you're talking a little bit about about birth control. What kind of birth control um, is available at that at this time? What what is being made available through the clinics? Well, quite quite a diversity. I mean, probably more than was common, say, in the United States at the time. But um, uh, we're talking about pessaries, a kind of di- diaphragms, um, um, condoms. More and more, they became uh, cheaper and more affordable for the working class at this time. Um, uh, sometimes they they had, and you can see ads for this in newspapers at the time, um, uh, um, different kinds of um, douches that that were actually wall mounted and um, had some had some pressure behind them. I think those became a little bit less common uh, later. Um, I think most common in the clinics that was that were advocated were were uh, 
um, cervical caps, pessaries, and diaphragms. And those things, of course, had to be fitted by a doctor to get the right size and those kinds of things. So there is really a, a strong sense, too, um, in this whole system of making sure that those uh, that, that access to birth control was kind of medicalized, that doctors would give people the advice of how to do it, people with skills, um, and it was an effort to, to prevent people from just ordering things um, through through the newspapers and through um, mail order boxes and those kinds of things which were happening. So there was an attempt to sort of, you know, a, a, a growing industry in in, um, in 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 birth control devices was 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 actually huge in in Germany, as of course you know, uh, with um, with companies like Fromm producing uh, massive numbers of condoms. But the, the the idea was to is another reason to attract people to these clinics to make sure that they were using them correctly under medical supervision and not just you know buying them on the open market. So, um, you know, the, the, the book sort of moves so nicely, sort of you know, really just takes us through the 20th century. Um, how do we get from, from the Weimar period to the Nazi period? Clearly part of a lot of what you're talking about, um, you know, the notion of the health of the nation, the connection to eugenics and so on sounds very familiar to, um, to people who maybe know a little bit more about Nazi Germany. Um, but something must change. Sure. There's actually, I think, a pretty big, a big, pretty big change. I mean, it's, it's, and it's not just a name change. In other words, the, you know, what, what is formally called, previously called marriage counseling now gets called racial and eugenic counseling, or, or the, the, you know, the racial health clinics instead of marriage counseling clinics. Uh, there's also a huge personnel change. So many of the people who had been, especially in Berlin, and I mean, this would look slightly different in other cities, but especially in Berlin, um, there had been a huge um, um, uh, involvement in all of these pro, uh, projects of SPD, socialist, social democratic, um, and also Jewish doctors involved in, in those kind in, in, the, in this kind of provision of services. And of course, those people are removed. The clinics are so the personnel. There's a huge personnel shift, not a, not a complete one. Uh, there are many people who go through this entire period uh, um, in and even then continue working in these same fields in the post-war. Um, but for those on the left and those, uh, and especially feminist organizations who were involved in this, um, many of them are forcibly removed or remove themselves. Um, and, and the clinics are, are renamed. And then you have a, a much more activist um, approach. There's, there was a, uh, an, uh, an attempt on the part of the Nazis that was never entirely successful, but the but the goal was not just to encourage people who might need these services to come, but to gather eugenic information about the entire population. So there's a there's a literally a a a, a card file started on on people. They want to find out the genetic family trees of the entire population and gather all this information. It it never entirely succeeds, partly because of a resource issue as things are. As things are ramping up in this direction, uh, the war begins, and there's a constant pressure on on these services uh, because people are taken out of these clinics and medical services and, and put into and, and put into the into war service. So um, there's a very it's, it's very important to sort of look at what that what the Nazis intended and what they actually achieved. And if you if the intent here was was rather draconian and um, and really comprehensive, they wanted to gather. Um, information about these things, about the entire population. But they, but what actually happens is much more haphazard than that. And I think there's a fair bit of interesting um, 
uh, randomness almost in who gets caught up in these in these in these services. Now, from the perspective of VD, things change quite a lot as well. I could talk a little bit about that because it looks a little different. There's less of an intertwining in some sense of the of the two services of marriage counseling and VD control because the Nazis have a have a different attitude towards um, uh, prostitution. They they start actually. Um, organizing brothels themselves during the war um, and and using it as as a way of of motivating um, soldiers on the front um, and prostitution um, is now looked at less as a social problem and more as something that can be controlled by by literally controlling prostitutes themselves directly and so um, they uh, they actually spend less time thinking about venereal disease as something of a, of a large social problem. They don't count venereal disease illnesses anymore. Uh, they don't under they they just they just make the assumption that because they're controlling prostitutes, uh, this problem is solved, and there's a lot less lot less discussion of those kinds of things. Um, what else happens in, in as a transfer? You know, you you talk a little bit about. Um about the ways in which, well, let me, you have this sort of nice phraseology about, about how to think about racism um, in this context. And, you know, I think you, you say that racism needs to be explained in ways that go beyond describing the formation, intensification, right. and explosion of racial hatreds. Um, so clearly, you know, it sounds like what you're trying to do is talk about racism in this sort of sphere of life, which might not be the first place we look. This isn't about, about, about explosions of racial hatreds, as you say, this is kind of a, a story of bureaucracy. Um, and again, a, a, a story of trying to organize sexual life. Um, but you know, how should we think about this in connection with the Nazis' racial programs? Right. Thanks for ambitions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I've, I've, I, I was trying to emphasize, and I, I think this, I think this, you know, I think maybe my desire to explain this does come from. Um, even my family background, understanding what it was, why, why did Germans follow? How could they, how could they have accepted uh, these kinds of policies? And I think if you look from this perspective, this, this family, you know, other people have talked about the valorization of motherhood and those kinds of, those kinds of aspects of it. What was it that made people feel like they belonged in this regime? And I think that these, that these policies, uh, it, it, it's important that the Nazis didn't entirely invent them. That that, that they that they drew on previous um, um, precedents of saying if you have a happy family life and if you make your 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 family choices with 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 the, with the health of the nation in mind, uh, then you're then you're a good German. And these these things uh, weren't 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 new to the to the Nazis, but then of course they brought them. They they really intensified this 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 whole uh, feeling of 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 all of your individual choices are are directed towards the health of the nation. So it's this it's this aspect of of belonging and, and inclusion uh, that I wanted to highlight. And I, I think that often that these policies have been looked at uh, from their um, from their very negative eugenic sort of perspective. So we have a book from Gisela Bock on forced sterilization, and that, that makes sense to us as something that the Nazis w did through their racial policy. But we don't often enough view why it was that people could accept this, because in their daily lives, 
is this is part of my argument many of the services that were that were racially motivated actually provided services to individuals that they wanted and, and needed and, and that made sense to them. So it's not to deny the, the negative policies that were imposed on others, uh, but I think we also have to understand why, how, how was it that people could make a moral sense of their, of their daily lives? And, you know, I think others have started to look at uh, the Third Reich from this perspective as well, because um, Gisela books, um, no, sorry, uh, Claudia Kuntz's book, uh, on the Nazi conscience. How is it that, that people could view most of the things that they did and most of the decisions that they made um, and think of them as moral when they were so racially motivated? And, and what I want to say is if we look at the um, the services, the things that were provide to pe- provided to people, most of them were things that they wanted and, and needed, and they could therefore uh, bracket out in their minds what was going on to... What was what was being imposed upon the outsiders, the racial minorities, and the others, because it made sense for them, and it made them feel like good Germans. Mm, yeah. So we have a um, a kind of, as like you say, a sort of a sense of the morality of everyday life, um, as well as the kind of. Uh, specific health decisions being made. Um, how do people make moral sense of, of, this, of the world around them? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, you know, I, I think you make an interesting point earlier on that there's sort of the, the Nazis' tremendous ambitions, um, but then the fact that the, the regime doesn't last very long before it gets into a pretty catastrophic war. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and that's not the only reason, you know, there, there, there are certain limits to what they're able to do. But, of course, that becomes, you know, that, that becomes the, the limiting factor in the end, um, mm-hmm. that attentions have to be turned to the military effort. And then, of course, then um, the Germans lose. And that loss um, sort of, as you explained, creates a kind of a, a, a sort of on an, a, a kind of a collision. On the one hand, there is the moral world which in people which in with people have been living, and that world has included benefits to to much of the population. Things like you say, services they value, and now suddenly they're kind of in this land of rubble and terrible mm-hmm. want and hunger and a complete loss of state services. Um, what happens then? And of course, Berlin is kind of ground zero of a place that looks yeah. like a, a rubble field in the, in the aftermath of the war. Um, the collapse of a moral universe and the collapse of, of social and medical services. Um, and then all of a sudden, of course, the, the, the presence of large masses of foreigners, the, the Allied occupation. Um, what happens next? I actually found that probably... Uh, the most fascinating, fascinating research that I did, because it's really, it, it's really this moment of amazing rupture and confusion. You know, they, everything, all of these different threads all come together in this post-war period. There's the clinics, many of them keep operating, uh, even the marriage counseling clinics, and some of them, you know, in the in the in the in the documents of the local um, healthcare administrators. Uh, they actually say things like, well, you know, we had this eugenic idea about what marriage counseling should be, and we have no reason to give that up because that's not a, it's not a typically Nazi idea. Others did this in, in many other countries. They're, they're still, and, you know, they weren't su- su- aware of this necessarily at the time, but there was eugenic sterilization going on in other Western countries, in Canada and Sweden and all of these things. They, had, it was, they were totally right to say these things were not necessarily 
a Nazi idea. Um, so um, at the top level of the, of the city administration of the health care administrators, they thought that things would continue as it always had. Um, but at the, um, but at the, uh, uh, but what happens is that the people who come to the clinics are seeking very different things. They're, they're as you said, it's a city of rubble. Um, men take along the, the, the men come back from, um, um, from war very slowly. Then there's huge family problems. And what you find is a real disconnect between the administrators, the city administrators and the actual health at the actual marriage counselors, because what they immediately start getting their job satisfaction from relationship counseling and from helping these families put their lives back together. And, and really the discussions about, eugenic decisions and children, all of those things uh, completely take a back seat in this very crisis situation. Um, from the perspective of venereal disease, of course, there's another huge wave of um, venereal disease infection because of the, the, the turmoil, uh, because of the rapes uh, that were, that were uh, a huge problem in Berlin with, with, with the Soviet occupation. There was a massive increase in unwanted pregnancies and of venereal disease, and so the, the the local health workers are are inundated with 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 these problems, with women who don't want to uh, carry out a pregnancy um, that was caused by a rape uh, from a Rus Russian soldier, and, uh, and and a venereal disease crisis. So there's uh, a need that the ideology doesn't disappear immediately in terms of what what marriage counseling should be, uh, but they have to react to the local situation. And there's really here, there's really, it's really obvious that it's a, it's a demand uh, from below for, for services and a rethink in, in terms of the, um, in terms of the goals of this healthcare structure. And I really think that um, in this case, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a reaction to this. There's, there's those, those, that eugenic kind of thinking um disappears because it doesn't it doesn't disappear but it it, it takes a back seat and actual practice practice completely uh, changes and transforms um, I there's other issues here involved in terms of um, uh, racial politics of course those things don't disappear entirely and in fact the fact that there are so many um, eventually so many black occupation soldiers um, in Berlin means that the Germans have to deal with that. So there's, and here, you know, the Americans don't necessarily disagree. There's efforts uh, made to try to prevent uh, sexual relationships between German women and black soldiers. Uh, there's concerns about fraternization in general with German women and, and American soldiers, but there's literally um, discussions about how to prevent uh, German women from hanging out in front of uh, the barracks of black soldiers, because there's concerns about that kind of uh, racial mixing. Um, yeah, I find I, I found that 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 period was uh, really quite fascinating, and, and also especially if we if you look at how the different different occupation regimes handled the situation. Um, the, the the post the anti BD posters, for instance, have uh, uh, reveal amazing. Uh, um, you can really see the different perspectives. So the German posters are, are very carefully um, about, you know, making sure that women, German women make the right choices about with whom to sleep and how, uh, whereas the uh, American posters are all about uh, 
avoiding the dangerous German women where venereal disease lurks and those kinds of things. Um, let's see. I, I mean, I think that it, the, the, there's a real, real transitional period there. Uh, the the idea of sexual duty doesn't entirely go away, but at, at, for a while, it's 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 completely conflated with this sense of absolute crisis and destruction, the destruction of the family, uh, the, the the dangers of uh, fraternization with foreigners, um, um, and all of those kinds of things. And there's some, even there, there's this one, uh, um, I think, really interesting uh, report written by um, an, an East German, in this case, from, from Eastern Berlin, about this situation where they really, uh, healthcare officials really sort of feel like this, that there's this explosion of eros, there's a, this explosion of sexual um, activity that needs to somehow be put back in the box. Um, and then we, we could get into uh, the differences between how uh, these issues are dealt with in, in, in East and West Berlin, which is one of the reasons that I picked Berlin as a case study, to be able to look at all of these different threads um, and to look at the comparison. Right. And, you know, and I think this is this is you know, a terrific transition, right, because we have this sort of uh, sort of environment of kind of material crisis, right, where, you know, families are, are you know, um, just having trouble getting back together, having trouble feeding their kids. Perhaps they're homeless. Um, perhaps the family is not able to reassemble itself. The, the, the man is just gone or, or who knows what or they've experienced rapes. And um, and at the same time, you have this kind of crisis on the ground, you've got the political division of the city of Berlin and the creation of two city administrations in mm-hmm. a way that are, of course, allied. You know, at, at, here we have sort of the municipal level Cold War, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and we see these municipal services becoming embedded into East Germany, meaning the larger communist world, and mm-hmm. West Berlin, meeting meaning, in a sense, the larger Western world. Um, and maybe you could talk to us a little bit about about what that looks like. It's actually, it's it's fairly difficult. I mean, it, there, at first, there's, there's cooperation, right? There's one venereal disease agency that was actually in the east part of the city who, that, and that actually controlled, controls all of these things. The decisions are made in Berlin in the control council. There's, uh, there's cooperation. In fact, in terms of venereal disease, uh, the initial orders on how this was to be handled all came from the Soviet side of things and were Soviet orders directly. And, the, and in some sense, um, the Allies initially agreed on how this should be handled, uh, but as things start separating, um, and and the and the and the and the, the municipal administration really separates into two sections, uh, then then there's debates back and forth, and there's uh, concern, for instance, about prostitutes um, escaping venereal disease controls because they they're moving back and forth across the east-west uh, border. So there's there's tensions that start evolving in this direction uh, because of the division. Uh, it also then becomes. Um, very complicated uh, with currency reform um, and with the fact that in the West there's far more access to penicillin than there was uh, in the East because they uh, couldn't produce it fast enough and couldn't and, and, and weren't buying it from the Americans, whereas in the West it came uh, from the Americans. So there's 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 reasons why uh, the systems separate, and because of the lack of access to penicillin in the in the East, uh, the um, the controls, the, the sort of raids and the, the effort effort to 
uh, control uh, individual behaviors uh, continue much longer. So there, there was this whole phase uh, in the whole city where uh, police, um, police and welfare workers together would go into uh, suspicious bars and cafes and just round everybody up and forcibly treat them, forcibly test them for venereal disease, and then forcibly treat them afterwards. Um, and those kinds of those kinds of really sort of draconian uh, measures decrease once penicillin is 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 available and once it's made clear that it that it cures both syphilis and gonorrhea um and then there's and then and then it's less it seems less necessary people are going to go get that treatment uh there's a, a, a huge black market in penicillin across the city um uh, and and this this continues in the east because in the east they can't uh, produce it as much um and then as the city gets more and more divided uh, the 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 more draconian controls remain in the east uh, uh, for that reason. Um, in terms of marriage counseling, uh, there's less of a distinction, um, but the rhetoric in in the east may is is more like it stays longer in terms of saying how critical it is um, uh, to to do this. But then the west. Um, the, the the focus on increasing the birth rate, of course, dis, sort of disappears for a while because uh, there had been a massive influx of people into eastern into eastern Germany. Right, all of these um, Germans fleeing parts of Poland and and other occupied parts of Eastern Europe. So in the in the, in the early years of of you know occupied of the of the Soviet occupation zone, um, and uh, even in the early years of the GDR, uh, the they're, the biggest concern is integrating a huge influx of people into into that part of in, in, into that part of Germany, uh, and so the so the there's 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 a few noises made uh, by um, by Ulbricht and others about how we how we do need to con- be concerned about growing our population, but it's not it's not a, it's not as critical a stage. So their their marriage clinics marriage counseling clinics are set up um but from a from a broader perspective it's really with the building of the wall that that changes dramatically because now now um or or, or actually just before the building of the wall then then east germany starts losing uh, people in dramatic numbers people fleeing the east and and heading into the west and then the the, the numbers the numbers situation uh, changes and there's more emphasis placed again on on the idea that families should should have babies and that this should be promoted and and particularly with the construction of the wall um those those concerns grow uh, dramatically whereas in the in the west um i think there was a, a much there was a less a less clear break in some ways with nazi ideology so in the east they simply said very quickly all of these policies are nazi uh, and there and there and, the, and these laws are, are gone um, but then but then there was an easier transition to go back towards uh, population political thinking because they'd made this supposedly clear break with what had gone before in the west there was uh, a really a a, a a movement towards making all of these words and these terminologies and these ways of thinking taboo so bevölkerungspolitik as a term and as a concept uh, became extremely problematic for many many years it was linked uh, linked to nazi thinking you couldn't phrase things in, in, in this way uh, for a long time. 
Um, I don't think it entirely went away, that thinking, but it was reframed and restructured in, in, in the context of a, of a democratic state. And there were much more concerns about um, um, there was much more concern about uh, having making any kind of policy statement that could be that could be framed that could be considered a Nazi uh, a Nazi policy. So, uh, in marriage counseling and in other areas, there was an emphasis placed on on relationship counseling. There was more um, interest and discussion and integration of ideas from uh, from the U.S. So 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 Kinsey's thinking and those kinds of things and psychological counseling uh, was discussed in in all areas of marriage counseling. And even though I think uh, I think to make the make the case that it doesn't disappear immediately, the idea of, of of making an argument saying that your that your decisions about how many children to have um, w was a sort of national decision those things those things fade and they fade uh, rapidly um, with uh, really uh, the introduction of the birth control pill and and um, and, and penicillin those things privatize sexual decisions, at least in rhetoric, um, and at least for a while. So this is what I talk about, this notion of sexual citizenship um, and sexual duty disappearing from the, from the language, from the political rhetoric, and really from also the practice. I think that even when I went to go talk to, um, I was looking for interview partners for people who had actually been in the marriage counseling and VD control clinics um, in the time period that I was studying. And I went to, to go talk to some current marriage counselors uh, in Berlin when I was doing my dissertation research um, in the 90s. And I asked, you know, when I when I talked about what marriage counseling was in this earlier time, they had no identification with that anymore. That's not the way they saw themselves. That's not the way they viewed themselves. That, 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 that feeling of these things being part of some sort of a sense of duty or a sense of of of, um, of, of nationalistic service uh, had totally disappeared, and so this this tracking how this works I th was part of my my goal in the in in those later chapters. I think that what's what's confusing and what's difficult is that uh, the, the, this this discussion about birth rates and about strength and those things certainly haven't disappeared and they're back on this they came back on the scene actually really after unification um, it's sort of something that I mentioned briefly in my introduction and conclusion um, this this revival of even the use of the word Bevölkerungspolitik after uh, German unification. And, and why is that? How can how can that how can that term uh, reappear? And that's you know this is one of these things that historians do make these links to the present uh, without entirely investigating what's going on in the present. Um, I think that the notion of sexual citizenship and sexual duty disappeared. Uh, I think it's very difficult for politicians to to now make those kinds of arguments to say you should be thinking about how you know how many children you have is 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 a decision that you should be thinking about in terms of your 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 citizenship your 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 uh, your identity as a german citizen they, they they i think those those kinds of arguments are gone um, and they've been replaced by discussions about economics and and economic growth and 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 birth rates in in that kind of sense and they the, the one the reason i'm hesitating here is i think this book by Tsaritsin about um about population policy which i have not yet read but which i plan to read soon is is reviving this kind of language without making it clear the links to its to its heritage uh, over the course of the 20th century.
Which is one of the interesting things about really taking the long view um, uh, that, you know, you, you sort of are able to, you know, you sort of look at the at, at current discussions and, and, and have some sense of what, the, what some of the legacy is, even if, if current actors, you know, aren't, aren't thinking in exactly those terms. Um, mm-hmm. But it sounds to me like you're, you're in a sense telling a story of, um, you know, the, the very, that this very, you know, present moment accepted where you really are telling a story of significant ideological change, right? For, for a good chunk of the 20th century, um, as a citizen, you were supposed to be thinking about about your sexual and reproductive behavior in terms of um, the health of the nation. And this is the true. This sounds, you know, this is true whether we're in the Weimar Republic or the Nazi period or the early postwar period. But but you describe a story in which in which that really genuinely does change. Um, but maybe not so much f- as a response to let's say Cold War ideologies. But at least from the story you just told, you know, p- part of it is. Um, and simply, simply a change in the ways health, the ways healthcare is delivered, and what's possible technologically. You know, if um, penicillin becomes available, and 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 this makes it certainly much more pleasant to get treatment for sexually transmitted disease. Um, so you 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 might do that in your own interest, rather than undergoing a terribly painful and dangerous cure because it's your duty to the to, to the nation. Um, right. And 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 um, and. Uh, you know, again, the birth control pill. I think this this notion of sort of the privatization um, of of reproductive health and its connection to to the ability to control one's fertility more in private, right? Um, which is what the pill enables. Um, seems to be an important part of the story. Yeah, I think actually, you know, I could be accused of being um, a little a little pie in the sky, a little every, everything got better. <laughs> <laughs> but it, in, in some well, but I, I find it difficult not to be that that way in this story. I think that I think that that it it did require those technological innovations for it to be possible for people to say, you know, these these things are are are, are my choice. They 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 have nothing to do uh, with my with my citizenship, with my with my service to a state, or and 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 really, it's very. It's very hard not to see this when you track when you track this change over a long time a, a long time a long period of time that it, it did make a big difference that 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 syphilis and gonorrhea could now be cured with I think a, a I think I think it's a ten day course of, of penicillin instead of um, instead of a uh, you know a long month long process of basically a kind of chemotherapy with salversan and other sort of mercury based uh, treatments that you know. Uh, that were kind of chemotherapy, in other words, uh, kill kill the disease just before you kill the person. Kind of, they were very unpleasant illnesses that required constant attention from the doctor and and and, and took a long a long long time to cure. Uh, and there's there really is a massive change uh, when when that fear is no longer when that fear is no longer there. Um, there's an interesting one. One interesting component of the change, which is why it was so fascinating to look at the transition and the and the interaction between uh, the occupation forces and the Germans. There was one case where the where the Germans uh, were resistant. The German doctors were resistant to using penicillin, 
Um, and uh, a report from the Americans said something like, you know, they, they preferred to have this control over people. <laughs> you know, they, they, mm. they, they, and they wanted to put people in the hospital permanently, you know, while they were being treated by penicillin. So there was, I think there was a moment where it was difficult to relinquish and to, and to say, no, we really have to put this, this medicine in the hands of individuals and, and, and allow them to treat themselves kind of, or, or give them this, this opening. I think there there was a, a, mo a moment there that, uh, that it was really clear that this meant uh, the freedom of the individual to a much larger extent than some of these German physicians trained in the Third Reich were really willing to give, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. there's, there's no question that, these, that, the, that the access to these things makes the, the, the arguments about insisting on people viewing things this way really quite untenable. Um, and so it, it's hard not to see this as kind of a, a good news story that 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 when these decisions are individualized, um, you know, people are happier. <laughs> there's there, there's there's less pain and suffering and there's less kinds of social control mechanisms uh, uh, possible. Um, and I really think that we've by now internalized the, that 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 it, it that we would be that we would be furious with certain kinds of arguments about sexual activity now the the complicating factor here which we haven't mentioned of course is is AIDS which I don't discuss in detail in the book because it's past the the chronology but but even even if we look at that um, there, there's you know you can see a sort of similar transition uh, the first phases of, of that disease um, sort of imposing a lot of uh, moral, moral, and 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 sometimes healthcare restrictions on people. And as 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 the treatments improve and as things get better, uh, it retreats as that kind of social control uh, issue. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I do think you know it, it is very interesting. Why right? we come back to some similar questions about what are what are the intersections between. Um, a personal right to health, an individual right, individual access to health, and and the role that plays in the the larger social good. It's a very very interesting story. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I'd like to um, ask uh, what you're where you're headed now. What are you working on now? Well, I moved. I, I moved. I didn't expect to move in this direction, but as I was doing the research for this book, um, uh, it. Uh, a specific topic, a specific agency came up that I I, I dismissed and very quickly and figured out I, I didn't need to deal with, um, and then later became very interested in, uh, and that's a, a program uh, that was planned by uh, Heinrich Himmler and the SS uh, called Lebensborn, and what he did was establish a um, a network of maternity homes for the motivation here was mostly for um, single women, pregnant, pregnant, pregnant single women uh, with the idea that if they uh, had a place to go to have their babies and even keep their pregnancies secret, they wouldn't abort their babies. So his goal, his idea, his concern was that a lot of uh, babies um, conceived out of wedlock were being aborted and that that meant that uh, valuable area, and I'm putting that word in quotation marks, uh, children uh, were being lost to the to the Reich. And so he set up this set system of maternity homes. And the reason that I, I dismissed it as part of this, this first book is um, 
it, because it didn't really have anything to do with fertility. My, my focus on in this book, Politics of Fertility, was on basically any measures uh, before conception. That's the way that I sort of divided up my topic. And when I, and when I realized that myths about Lebensborn, that the idea that they were a breeding farm, that, that, um, that Himmler, and this is a large myth that has been uh, perpetuated in popular culture, all across the Western world, that 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 Himmler had actually set up uh, these institutions where he would match up uh, girls and SS soldiers to produce a new baby. And if that had been if that had been what Lebensborn was, then it would have been part of this book because it would have been an effort to increase the birth rate. In fact, it was an effort to uh, prevent abortion. Uh, but what I'm interested in is not just what actually occurred, which I think is still quite fascinating and, and really part of the kinds of things that I was talking about, the part of um, providing services to people who were in dire need and integrating them into the Volksgemeinschaft, into the, the national community, because um, that's part of what happened in, in Lebensborn. But I'm also particularly interested in the myths about it afterwards. I think it's 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 very a logical thought that Himmler would have wanted to breed the master race by actually, you know, sort of artificially putting couples together. And in fact, in some sense, that is what he wanted for the future. Um, but I think there's also an interesting story to be told about why uh, Lebensborn has been perpetuated as, as this idea of the breeding farm in popular culture, not just in Germany, but across the Western world. Um, and it has also interesting aspects of how we we view the Nazis as this sexually seductive force. So I'm looking at uh, what actually occurred in these homes, but also um, the, the popularization and sexualization of these themes in popular culture. So I also am looking at um, novels and, and porn films and all of these kinds of things, how, how these myths about the Third Reich get spread. Very, very interesting, and I uh, certainly look forward to reading and learning more about that project. Um, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, we've been talking about the politics of fertility in 20th century Berlin uh, with author Annette Tim, and it's been wonderful to speak to you, and uh, I recommend everybody run out and read the book. Thank you. All right. Our guest today has been Annette Tim author of The Politics of Fertility in 20th Century Berlin, Cambridge University Press, 2010, and Associate Professor of History at the University of Calgary. I'm Lisa Heinemann, co-host of New Books in Gender Sexuality Studies. Thanks for listening.